0: also turned me from thinking that we could have top down solutions to the importance of community led bottom up approaches to these problems uh, of course combined with having gotten pretty frustrated with lack of progress on all the years that I was I've been working in Washington uh, the the attractiveness of of uh, these small scale small community solutions that I've been seeing more and more across the country really uh, has lifted my spirits and 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 pointed me on a new direction
1: welcome to infinite earth radio we believe that in a world of finite natural resources a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive, and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller Travis.
2: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their urban resilience project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash U-R-P. If you'd like to keep up with us here at Infinite Earth Radio, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com and subscribe to our weekly updates on the podcast and other sustainability and equity issues in the media. Our topic today is community resilience and fresh water. Our guest is Rebecca Water, a nationally known environmental leader whose career in conservation began with the first Earth Day. As a fellow with the Center for Humans and Nature, Rebecca explores how communities enhance their resilience to climate impacts via sustainability approaches to rivers and freshwater resources. Rebecca is the board vice chair of River Network, a national association that empowers local river champions. She also serves on the board of the Potomac Conservancy and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin. From 1995 to 2011, as president of the National River Advocacy Organization, American Rivers, she led the development of community-based solutions to freshwater challenges. From 2011 to 2013, she served as senior advisor to Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar. And in 2010, she was named a Top 25 Outstanding Conservationist by Outdoor Life magazine. Rebecca, we are so honored to have you with us today. Thank you for making the time to be here. It's my pleasure. So Rebecca, your bio says your environmental career with, began with the first Earth Day. Can you take us back to that first Earth Day, and how did that become such an important milestone in your life, and how did it alter your career path?
0: Well, it set me on my career path, actually. It was 1970, and I was uh, graduating senior in high school, just heading to college and and trying to decide what kinds of things i wanted to do with my life uh, the late 60s as you might imagine were a time when young people in particular were motivated by civil rights issues the vietnam war environmental issues and all of those things were sort of swirling in my head and important to me personally so when the first earth day came along when the when this idea was sort of became public. My high school chemistry teacher asked if I would organize this event for the community. We really didn't know what it was supposed to be about, but we knew it was intended to engage people and help them recognize the environmental issues that were so prominent at the time. You know, we had Rivers that were burning and needles on beaches and all sorts of oil spills. So it was a time when there were a lot of really serious environmental problems. And the first Earth Day was just a great event in my life because it, it showed me how I could combine my passion for making a difference with my sort of academic interest in science and biology. And so it really was the beginning of what has been now some almost 50 years working on environmental advocacy.
2: And so has your environmental career always focused around fresh water or has that been a, a transition over time?
0: Water has always been very important to the work that I've done. Uh, it it took me through my undergraduate and graduate education. I I have a degree in water resources management, a master's degree in water resources management from the University of Wisconsin. I When I finished graduate school, I moved to Washington, D.C. to work for Gaylord Nelson, who was uh, a senator from Wisconsin, actually the founder of Earth Day, and many of the issues I worked on for him when he was in the United States Senate had to do with water. And uh, so it's been a theme for for really my whole life, and something that I'm passionate about.
2: So back on the Earth Day in 1970, you mentioned, you know, in the country, we had rivers that were on fire and and horribly polluted. Climate change was barely on anybody's radar screen, probably at that point, but certainly, you know, not widely thought about. How has your career as an environmentalist focused on water really evolved as climate change has emerged as such a huge issue. Could you explain that to maybe our, our younger audience who, you know, weren't aware of a day when climate change wasn't a concern?
0: Right, right. You know, I'm trying to think back to, even to when I first became really aware of climate change, but it, it's been a number of years now. And, and maybe my earliest recognition was that so much of what happens with climate change happens through water. Uh, You know, it happens through the hydrological cycle. Uh, We have uh, both conditions of very intense, extreme precipitation leading to flooding. In some places, in other places, we have the opposite condition, where we, ha- we go without any rain or precipitation or snow for very long periods of time and have extreme drought conditions. Storms, hurricanes come directly through the hydrological cycle. And then even in the more indirect ways, when our forests, which are the source of so much of the water supply of this country... Uh, when our forests become diseased and sick and burn and and we lose those those sources of water it it affects all the downstream communities so water is the way that we experience weather and and weather is the way we experience climate change in our daily lives
2: so you know but back in the day when you when you first started, climate change wasn 't really the issue right it was it was the quality of the water in rivers. It was the pollution. It was the fact that, like you said, we had rivers in this country that actually caught on fire. They they were so polluted. So your your focus back then was, I, I would assume, somewhat a little bit different than maybe your focus now. But maybe I'm maybe I'm missing the boat here.
0: It's all connected. When we have extremely hot conditions, made worse and more frequent by a changing climate, that can lead to water quality problems. It can cause uh, blooms of toxic algae that make water undrinkable. The c- uh, city of Toledo, uh, last summer, I believe it was, had a couple of days when uh, there was no drinking water because climate change had affected the quality of the water supply. So it's uh, th- th- it's all tied together. And if it hadn't been climate change that was the thing that f- came in and just caught all of us off guard and then focused our attention, then something else similar would have happened. It could have been tied to unsustainable resource use. I mean, there's some big factors that are shaping our world things that are caused by humans uh that are that are crossing the the planetary boundaries the boundaries that uh, enable life as we know it on this planet and one of those boundaries is climate uh, but there are other bl- boundaries as well and and many many of them touch water because ultimately uh, the reason that we have a blue planet the reason there is life on this planet is is because of water it is the fundamental reason for life
2: So in a world in which I think folks are currently feeling there's so many issues to deal with and so many challenges that we're facing, can you express to people the degree to which our freshwater supply is currently under stress? And, you know, is it unprecedented? Are we at the worst point we've ever been? Or uh, could you explain a little bit about the degree to which our freshwater supply is being threatened?
0: Sure. And the answer is somewhat different if we're talking about the United States or if we're talking about the planet as a whole. Let me start with the United States. I would say that the situation, the picture is a a little mixed. We've already mentioned that in the 60s, rivers were catching on fire. So we had a, a really awful water pollution problem up until we passed the Clean Water Act in 1972. And not to say that the water pollution problem is solved today. We still have a water pollution problem, but some of the really worst excesses were controlled when we passed the Clean Water Act in the early seventies. And so in, in you know, in some ways you can look out there and see that our water bodies, our rivers, our lakes are are cleaner than they they once were. But there are other things that have happened uh since the Clean Water Act that really aren't addressed by the Clean Water Act, like non point pollution is 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 not well controlled. And other things such as just our old infrastructure we have all this water infrastructure on that delivers our drinking water that take brings water to our factories and our farm fields and carries away our wastewater we have all this infrastructure that's gotten very old and and some of it is failing and so the problems the nature of the problems have have changed a bit but i think the sum total you'd have to say that given the development that has gone on since uh, in the last 40 or 50 years, it's, it's a gradually worsening picture with more and more unsustainable resource use and deteriorating systems and then climate change exacerbating both of those problems intensely.
2: So back in, in March, you talked about the Clean Water Act. Back in March, uh, you wrote an editorial that appeared in the USA Today about the Clean Water Rule. Um, can you explain to our audience what the Clean Water Rule is, why it's important, and and why the current administration is considering you know repealing it or killing it?
0: Well, the Clean Water Act of 1972 said applied to all the nation's water, and the goal was f- for our waters to be fishable and swimmable. Drinkable with some treatment. And, and, and so that was something that uh, we began as a nation and both at the federal level and at the state level and the local level to start to clean up the pollution and restore our fresh water resources in this country. And the act has uh, worked well over, over many years. But in the early 2000s, there were a couple of court cases, legal cases, that ended up in the United States Supreme Court and led to some questions about what waters were going to be protected, what waters the Clean Water Act would be applied to. It created a lot of confusion across both uh, the industry and, and farming community, as well as the agencies that were responsible for for implementing the Clean Water Act. And so the long and short of it is that um, in the years following those Supreme Court decisions, the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers worked very hard to come up with a, um, a way to clarify which waters would be covered by the Clean Water Act, and that is what created what's known now as the Clean Water Rule. That rule was finally uh, finished in 2015, and... So it's that rule that the, our, uh, President Trump has directed the EPA to revisit, uh, and ultimately, uh, to consider repealing it. And, uh, so that would send us back to the time when there was much confusion about what the Clean Water Act pertained to. Now, it may be that the new administration will issue their own version of a clean water rule and, we will have to just wait and see whether that rule will cover uh, small streams and and wetlands. Uh, one of the things that is so important about small streams is that they are the headwaters; uh, they are the sources of our drinking water. And something like one third of all Americans get their drinking water. Uh, it starts with these small streams that I certainly hope will continue to be protected, but I am worried about it. And and um, uh, wetlands are another part of. The Clean Water Rule question and and wetlands not only are part of providing healthy water supplies, but they also absorb floodwaters and do uh, provide a lot of fish and wildlife habitat. So I am also concerned about what will happen to wetlands with this uh, current reopening of the Clean Water Rule by this administration.
2: So what what kind of industries are are most impacted by the new Clean Water Rule? I mean the the 2015 clean water rules. My assumption is that it's, that it impacts more real estate development, golf courses, uh, as opposed to you know, ind- traditional industry or manufacturing. But is that a misconception on my part?
0: No, I, you're, you're correct. De- development would be uh, one key constituency that is concerned about this. And the other would be, I would say, uh, agriculture would be the other group in our society that is paying a lot of attention to this this question. You know, this is something that we all have a stake in. Um it's Im- certainly important that we have uh farming, you know, that's where our food comes from. Uh we we can't uh can't live without that. Uh, but we also can't live without clean water and I'm a firm believer that uh, there are good solutions to be had if people will Talk to each other and and sit down at a table in a constructive way and and um, uh, find those solutions. They're they're most certainly um, they're out there for us and and all stakeholders uh, deserve um, a chance to be heard and to have input. When the Clean Water Rule was being worked on by the Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers, there were hundreds of public meetings. More than a million people commented uh, on the rule before it was finished. So we've already been through this process pretty recently, and now we're going through it again.
2: So that was a good point of transition. One of the things, I've, I have had an opportunity to read a lot of what you've written, and it was all very fascinating and, and, and really valuable. One of the things you talk about in your writings is about the synergy between natural capital and social capital, and that these two elements, the capacity to work together and the capacity to work with nature, are kind of key to climate resilience. Can can you elaborate on that a little bit? And you you also mentioned that you think that they're, in particular, natural capital and social capital are, are undervalued. Maybe you could share with our audience, you know, what you mean by those terms and why you think they're so important
0: absolutely and i i i do think that natural and social capital are are the key to climate resilience at uh, for the nation as a whole but particularly at the level of our communities so by natural capital what i mean is sort of the natural world the water the land the air the living uh, creatures just the entire biological and 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 chemical and physical sphere of the earth and that is What provides us with the ingredients of life? I mean, we've talked a lot about water, but they're all of those features give us the things that we need to live on this earth. And, and so I think it's probably pretty obvious that natural capital is a valuable resource and, and, and I think well recognized by all parts of the economics Uh, spectrum, maybe not so much the social capital in terms of being well-recognized and and valued. Uh, What I mean by social capital, uh, you know, those are social relationships, social networks, um, shared values, behavioral norms, the things that glue us together as a society. And when we talk about climate resilience, uh, it's really those two resources, the natural world and our social relationships that can work together in very synergistic ways to create the kind of resilience that we're going to need desperately need for a future with so many challenges being being visited upon us.
2: So Rebecca you, you wrote an article for Earth Talk blog titled Choosing Hope in New Orleans and you talk about being in New Orleans right after Katrina and questioning the wisdom of rebuilding in such such a vulnerable place. And in the article, you talk about how your views changed over have changed over time. Can you talk about that conversion and why the work that is happening in New Orleans is so important?
0: When I was there right after Katrina, it was a, a terrible time. And gosh, the the amount of death and destruction was just heartbreaking. The people who I met at the time more than a decade ago were so committed to the idea of rebuilding their community. But I, in my heart, although I, I don't think I expressed this to anybody, but I felt, you know, is it possible to rebuild this place? Is it, is it even ethical to have people move back into places that are so vulnerable, uh, both neighborhoods that are vulnerable in New Orleans, but also the city as a whole and its relationship with uh, the ocean? So I, I, you know, I had a very, skeptical eye at that time. But then 10 years later, I came back to commemorate the, the tragedy. And uh, I just was so impressed by what I saw in that community. And it really transformed my way of thinking about climate resilience and and particularly with respect to water. The community has created a resilience plan. It's It's based on the notion of living with water as opposed to their old notion, which was trying to control water and and keep it at bay, they they are recognizing that they need to figure out how to work with their natural resources. But just as importantly, they are recognizing the importance of the social capital in their community and how much the resilience of the community, the ability to prepare for and and recover from climate events that are always going to be happening to communities across the country and around the world, uh, that a resilient community that has strong social capital and has rebuilt its natural capital will be much better able to prepare for and recover from these events that are, that are going to be happening. So it really turned me from thinking about just science and laws solving the problem to realizing that so much has to do with, with people. Uh, I think it also turned me from thinking that we could have top-down solutions to bottom, the importance of community-led bottom-up approaches to these problems. Uh, of course, combined with having gotten pretty frustrated with lack of progress on all the years that I was, I've been working in Washington, the attractiveness of, of, uh, these small scale, small community solutions that I've been seeing more and more across the country really uh, has lifted my spirits and, and, and pointed me on a new direction.
2: So Rebecca, where can folks learn more about your work?
0: Well, I I write occasionally for various um, online magazines and and blogs, and I have a chapter coming up, uh, a chapter in a a book that's coming out on community resilience uh, this fall uh, that Island Press is going to be publishing.
2: So the, the Community Resilience Reader that you mentioned offers a new vision for creating resilience through essays by leaders in such varied fields as science, policy, community building, and urban design. The Community Resilience Reader combines a fresh look at the challenges facing humanity in the 21st century, the essential tools of resilience science, and the wisdom of activists, scholars, and analysts working with community issues on the ground. It shows that resilience is a process, not a goal, how resilience requires learning to adapt but also preparing to transform, and that resilience starts and ends with the people living in a community. So folks, that's it's an upcoming book. I, I think it's a few months out. But folks can go to islandpress.org backslash book backslash the hyphen community hyphen resilience hyphen reader. And on our website, we'll also post uh, a number of articles that Rebecca has written. So you can just go to the uh, infiniteearthradio.com and uh, check out this episode and there are show notes and there'll be links to all of the various different writings that Rebecca has done. So Rebecca, if you could, through the magic of time travel, go back and talk to young Rebecca on Earth Day in 1970, what wisdom would you pass along to her?
0: That's that's a deep question, Mike. I think one of the things that I learned first from Working with Gaylord Nelson, Senator Gaylord Nelson, uh, and has come up for me over and over in my life and has sustained me really is the, in the importance of hope and not being naive, not burying one's head in the sand and, and ignoring problems, but realizing that hope is a choice. Hope is some, a choice you have to make sometimes multiple times a day to go on in the face of what seem like insurmountable problems and excessive amounts of cynicism and skepticism and strife which is really growing in our society today and and so you know i i i think that um being able to hold on to that that quality of hope being able to make that choice recognizing that things are going to continue to be difficult. We don't have uh, there's nothing there's no way to solve all the problems in a in a simple way. It's going to require combined efforts of people all across the world and it's going to require immense amounts of social capital and and we're going to need to restore and learn about our natural capital so that we can use it in a constructive way and not a destructive way. So um I, I think that the importance of hope would be my one of my main messages to the young Rebecca. And you know, you, you you might have asked me what would I say to a you know a future Rebecca, and that would also be the same answer is is the importance of carrying on and doing everything that you can while you have your turn at the wheel and and handing things off to the next generation in in as good of condition as you possibly can.
2: It's funny we had a we had a young Rebecca on the show just recently, a uh, a young woman who's very active ar- around climate change issues who's maybe a little bit older than you were in 1970 and she talked about what a tremendous opportunity it was to be alive at a moment where she could have so much impact on the future. And um, she talked about the importance of staying positive. So, so your message has gotten through to the future. Rebecca's, are are you more hopeful now than you were in nineteen? It's hard to go back to know you, what your mindset was then. But are you more hopeful now than you were then, or or less so?
0: I don't know that I can go all the way back to nineteen seventy, but I I can go back to the beginning, let's say, of the twenty first century. And I I am more hopeful than I would have been. 15 or 20 years ago and it's really because of the efforts that are happening at the local and regional levels across this country uh, where communities are are discovering ways to work together and to and to work with their water resources and other kinds of resources and and learning the benefits of having those healthy resources uh, whether those whether we're talking about economic benefits or we're talking about health and and welfare and and safety benefits or or maybe most importantly of all well, quality of life you know being able to be in or near a body of water is is So restorative and, and it, um, you know, really helps people both personally and, and in, and in, um, in their community be better people and be more socially connected. So I think that there's, there's an, a lot that's happening in various places around the country. And part of my mission at this point in my life is to try to identify those places and find those stories and share them as much as I can when I'm speaking and writing across the country to, to just point to places where people have come together and have been successful and have started to repair the breaks in the natural and social systems that are so important to us.
2: Rebecca, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you for all the important work that you do. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
1: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at InfiniteEarthRadio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash InfiniteEarthRadio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.